Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and let's go to Mark chapter number 15, the book of Mark in chapter number 15 this morning. And I hope you have your Bible with you. And if you do not, It should be perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you, maybe in the back of the seat behind you. You'll find a copy of God's Word and we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter 15. And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 15. And we're going to read verse number 1 down to verse number 15 this morning. Mark 15 verse 1 to verse 15. And we are in... The final moments of the life of Jesus here. And this is where our study in the book of Mark has brought us to. We come this morning to verse number one. And straightway in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he, answering, said unto them, Thou sayest it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered, nothing. So that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast, he, so so look here, the he there is Pilate. So at the feast, Pilate released unto them one prisoner whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. The crowd wants Pilate to do like he's always done, and he wants them to release a prisoner to them on this special feast that they're having. And Pilate, answering, verse 9, Pilate answered, said unto them, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him, Jesus, for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and he said again unto them, What will ye then that I should do with whom ye call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Why? What what evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, 
Crucify Him. And so, Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives and in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Life is not fair. When you were a kid, you probably heard your mom or your dad, maybe, maybe a teacher or a coach, maybe a grandma or grandpa tell you something to that effect. Life is not fair. How many have ever heard that before? Growing up in a family of four kids, there were lots of times where I'd start to complain to my parents, hey, it's not, that's not fair. My, my, my brother's got that. My sister got that. My mom simply would reply, well, life is not fair. We, we all want life to be fair, do we not? Fairness is a Bible idea. God is a fair God. He's a God of justice. Literally, justice is fairness. Meaning, he loves what's right. He hates what's wrong. He is not impartial in any way. God does not have favorites. So when we desire fairness, we are reflecting the image of God that is in us. The problem is not that we desire fairness. The problem is really more found in our definition of fairness. For most of us, we think that fairness means nothing bad should ever happen to me and only good should happen to me. That's how most of us def define fairness. We, we think, well, well, what did I do to deserve this? Fill in the blank. And, and why should I have to struggle with that? Fill in the blank. And by the way, these are, these are legitimate complaints. I, I wish for you, for me, for your kids, for my kids. I, I wish we never had to face difficulty in this life. I wish we never had to deal with unfairness. But the, but the reality is we live in a broken, sin-cursed world. And sometimes life just isn't fair. But the reality of our situation is that God does not owe you and God does not owe me. God does not owe us anything. God is good, the Bible says. And the Bible says that God is good in giving good things to his children. These are understood in the Bible as gifts. But God's gifts are not given to you or to me because we have earned them in some way. God has given us gifts because he is a merciful and a gracious God. 
Any good thing that you or I get from God is because God is merciful and because God is gracious. Because of our sin, the only thing that you and I deserve from God is judgment and justice. And we have all sinned. That's what the Bible says. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way, done our own thing. And the Bible teaches us that sin has separated us from God in this life. And should you die separated from God in your sin, then you will enter into eternity separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. Now here's the good news. The good news is that you and I do not have to go to hell because there is forgiveness of sin. There's forgiveness of our sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place. He took our punishment so that you and I do, do not and did not and will not have to if we've put our faith and trust in him. So how do we uh, find forgiveness of sins through Jesus? Well, according to the Bible, the way that you and I find forgiveness of sin is by placing our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. A false religion says the way you find forgiveness of sins is through your good works. It's through religiosity. It's through your civility and morality. It's through doing good things. You earn forgiveness from God. But the Bible's message is completely different. The Bible's message is no. Not only can you not earn forgiveness from God, you don't have to earn forgiveness from God because God has given us his mercy and grace through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, everything we get from God is mercy and grace. But God owes us none of this. In fact, we should remember that the only person, and I mean only person, who has ever lived, who could truly say, I do not deserve this, was Jesus himself. And yet, Jesus, as we read in Mark chapter 15, is willingly receiving unfairness so that God can generously extend to you and me his mercy and his grace. Jesus is unfairly tried. He's unfairly sentenced to death on the cross. All the while, someone who truly deserves to die, someone who truly deserves justice, someone who truly deserves the cross, gets to go free. That's the story we just read. It breaks down in the text like this. You see in verse number one to verse number five, Jesus is before Pilate. In verse number six to verse number 11, they choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. 
And then in verse number 12 to verse number 15, you see Jesus is being tortured and dying on the cross for you and for me. So let's look at him in order. Look at verse 1 verse to verse 5. This is Jesus who stands before Pilate. The Bible says in verse 1, straightway in the morning, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders, the whole council, they carry Jesus away and they deliver him to Pilate. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. Because the religious rulers of the day, while they had a lot of power, they did not have the power to put someone to death. And you'll remember all the way from the beginning of Mark chapter 3, they've been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. They had brought Jesus in. They had arrested him in the middle of the night. They had tried him with their fake trials the entire night long. And they had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. According to their terms, they asked Jesus, are you the son of God? Are you from God? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus affirmatively, he positively uh, uh, accepted this by saying, yes, I am. We looked at that last week. He said, I am. So according to their terms, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Nothing else was needed to be said. He should be put to death according to the law. But the problem is, is that they were under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, they couldn't put a man to death. The Romans had to agree to this. So now they not only needed Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy, so that according to their religious laws, he could be put to death, but they needed Jesus to be guilty of treason so that politically he would be seen as an enemy so that they might put him to death. And so they bring him to Pilate and they make these false accusations against him. And Pilate straightway asks Jesus this question, verse 2, Art thou the king of the Jews? Someone who simply claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be this religious personality, he was not a threat to Pilate. He was not a threat to Caesar. He was not a threat to Rome. But someone who claimed to be the king Someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews was a political threat. In fact, in Luke's account, they say in chapter 23, we, we found this man guilty of misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute unto Caesar, saying that he himself is a king. It's ironic, isn't it? Because the reason that they want to get rid of Jesus is because Jesus isn't being kingly enough for them. You, you remember when Jesus is feeding the 5,000 and they see the miracles that Jesus can do and they come to Jesus and they say, oh, you are the one we're waiting for. You have all kinds of power. You, you have all kinds of ability. You can work miracles. You can give us bread. You can help us overthrow Rome. And they, the Bible says, decide to take Jesus by force and make him a king. And what did Jesus do? Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm not that kind of a king. I'm not the kind of king who is here to just kick out Rome. I am a king who is here to deal with the sin of the world. And a, a lot of times the, the frustration that you and I have with God is because God isn't doing what we think God should do. This isn't, this isn't just distrust. 
This is, this is actually disbelief. It's not believing that God is good. It's not believing that God is merciful. You need to understand this, that distrust in who God is always leads to disbelief in the way in which God is working. We've seen this already in our study in the book of Romans a few years back, but disbelief, disbelief in the heart always leads to dishonor in the body. Well, there you have it. For these religious leaders, there was distrust, which led to disbelief, which leads to dishonor. Romans chapter 1, the Bible says that when we knew God, we glorified him not as God. We distrusted, so we disbelieved. And that disbelief, what did it do? And we became vain in our imaginations and our foolish heart was darkened. And we decided to do all kinds of evil and perverse things in the body. So disbelief in the heart leads to dishonor with the body. It's distrust, it's disbelief, it's dishonor. Well, Pilate has, has laid it to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers verse 2 with three, simple three words, thou sayest it. In the Greek, it's actually just two words. It's just thou sayest. It's, it's well, that's what you say. That's what you have said I am. That's what they have said I am. And Jesus here is saying, my kingship is not the kind of king that you are implying it is. So, so let's, ask, let's ask and answer a question this morning. Is Jesus the king? And of course the answer is yes. However, Jesus is not simply the king of the Jews. And Jesus is not simply the king of one particular country or continent. Jesus, the Bible says, is the king of kings. His people are not limited to one ethnicity group or one language. His people, the Bible says, are in every tribe and in every language. And Jesus is the king, but he is not simply the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. And you notice here, verse 3, then the chief priest jump on this by accusing Jesus of things. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things. Isn't that interesting? We've already seen this last week where they began reinterpreting the things that Jesus had said. Listen very closely. Here's what they're doing. They're, they're reinterpreting the events of the past in order to justify their decision in the present. They are reinterpreting the events of the past in order to justify their decision in the present. And do we not do the exact same thing? We reinterpret the events in our past so that we can justify why it is that we have decided to do what we are doing today. 
And the roots of bitterness and resentment and sin and contention and anger thrive in this kind of way of doing life. We tell ourselves the reinterpreted event long enough and often enough that we start to believe our own fabricated story. We, we start to find a justification for why we are doing what we are doing. Just look at it as you look at the scribes and Pharisees in this situation. They will walk away from this event with their chest pumped out, pride in their heart, thinking that they have done the service of God while they are putting to death the very Son of God. How can they get in that kind of place? How can they land in that kind of situation? Here's how. By reinterpreting the events of the past in order to justify the decisions in the moment. And these kind of same things happen in our marriages, with our friendships, in churches, in the office, in the relationships around us. We reinterpret the events of our past. Well, this one time you did this one thing, you said this one thing, you went this one place, you didn't do this for me. And we reinterpret the events of the past in order to justify why we are making the decisions we're making in the, in the present. And that's exactly what they're doing here. Well, you know, now that I mention it, she didn't shake my hand the last two weeks. She must be angry and that makes her bad. You see how it works? We reinterpret the events of our past in order to justify the decisions we make in the present. And we tell ourselves that same reinterpreted event long enough and often enough that we start to believe our own fabricated story. We've done this before. This is how bitterness happens in your heart and in your mind, in my heart and mine. If, if, I, if I walked out of my house in the morning and I decided to walk across my lawn, just one particular path, and I just walked that same, tr that same path every morning right across my grass in my front yard, if I just walked that same path, what would eventually happen to that patch of grass? It would die. And instead of just walking across a patch of grass, I'd, just have, a pat I'd, I'd have a, a trail of dirt, wouldn't I? And if I just keep walking that trail of dirt, just every day I walk that same little trail, well, what's going to happen to that little trail of dirt in my yard? What's it going to become? It's going to become this little groove, isn't it? It's going to be just a little bit lower than all the grass and ground around it. And I'm just going to keep walking that same groove back and forth all day. If I just walk, I never veer off the trail. I never get off the path. I just keep walking that same thing every day. And that grass becomes a trail of dirt, which becomes this little groove. It's just a little bit lower than all the grass and dirt around it. And if I just keep walking on that same thing, what happens? Then that, that little groove becomes a rut. And then that little rut, if I keep walking on it, man, that, be, that becomes this little trench. And then that little trench becomes a deep moat. If I just keep walking that same path back and forth long enough, often enough, and I find myself in a trench, in a moat 
that I can't get out. And that's exactly what's happening with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as it relates to the very Son of God. They have reinvented, they have reinterpreted the events of their past in order to justify their decisions in the present. And now they find themselves stuck in a trench that they can't get out, even if they wanted to get out of it. And that same thing happens in marriages, happens in families, happens in relationships, friendships, churches. We reinterpret the events of our past in order to justify our present decisions. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you're the one that said that. The Jewish leaders start accusing him of all kinds of things. So Pilate, verse 4, verse 5, asks if Jesus wants to respond, and of course he says nothing. You notice you'll see it three times in the text. Look at verse 3. He answered nothing. Look at verse 4. Answerest thou nothing. Look at verse 5. Answered nothing. Three times the same phrase is used, said nothing. Nothing. And Jesus doesn't feel the need to set the record straight. Jesus has already said in front of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's in front of the high priest, the record will be set straight one day. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I will reign and rule in power. Hey, 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 Caiaphas, Annas, chief priests, Pharisees, scribes, you will see me again one day. And the day you see me again, I won't be on that side of the docket. I won't be standing trial in front of you. You will be standing trial in front of me. You want to set the record straight? And Jesus says, the record will be set straight one day soon enough. So Jesus' silence here should not be interpreted as defeat. Jesus' silence here should be understood as surrender to the will of God. Jesus knows he, he's innocent. Jesus knows this is not a fair trial. Jesus knows the events that are being played out are simply reinterpreted and only in order to justify the decisions in the present. And so he's quietly surrendered to the will of the Father. And this is what I want you to see on this first point. I want you to listen very closely. What do we see from Jesus? That even though sometimes life isn't fair, we can still trust God. Life wasn't fair to Jesus, but he kept trusting God. Life wasn't fair to Jesus, but he kept trusting God. And we need that same kind of resolve in our lives. Life may not have been fair to you. But you can and should and must trust God. It's Pilate. It's Jesus before Pilate. But let me show you a second thought here. It's Barabbas instead of Jesus. Look at verse 6. 
Now at the feast, he, Pilate, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. So, so Pilate is going to do something that's going to gain a political favor. So at this feast, the custom was that one prisoner of their own choosing, whoever the Jews chose, would be released unto them. And so Pilate thinks, okay, well, I've tried Jesus. I don't find him guilty of any of the things of which they have charged him. And so here's what I've got. I, I, I'm going to make this proposition. Would you rather have Jesus or would you rather have Barabbas? Well, verse number seven tells us who Barabbas is. Barabbas, the Bible says, had made an insurrection. The Bible says that Barabbas had committed murder. It was literally a, a rebel. He was a thug. He was throwing off the rule of law. And he decided in throwing off the rule of law, laws didn't apply to him. He was free to do whatever he so chose to do in getting rid of this oppressive form of government over him. And so he's throwing off the rule of law. And the Bible says that in so doing, he had murdered someone in it. And so it's pretty straightforward. Pilate thinks, well, who would choose Barabbas? Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is a thug. Barabbas is, a, is an insurrection. Nobody would choose this murderer over a miracle worker. This guy feeds the hungry. This guy helps the sick. This guy performs miracle for the blind. It's a no-brainer. And Pilate thinks, okay, I, I see what's happening here. The chief priests are really just envious of this guy and his religious power. And so I am going to make these options. Do you want the murderer or do you want the miracle worker? And of course, the Bible says that the plan backfires. The crowd demands the release of the man named Barabbas. That's what happens. Look at verse 8. And the multitude crying aloud had been turned, the Bible says in verse 11, they'd been moved, the chief priests had moved the people and talked them into releasing Barabbas. Sometimes, you know, we think, well, God needs my help in fulfilling his plan. And so we manipulate and we scheme and we try all kinds of things in order to help God out with the plan that God has. How many of you know this? God is really good at being God. Like, he's been God for a long time. Long before you and I ever got here. And he'll be God long after we're gone. And yet here's Pilate thinking... Well, I, I, I got I to help the plan out a little bit. And the Bible says the chief priest stirred the people to vote for Barabbas. It's a great example here in the passage as the crowd cries out, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas, kill the miracle worker, release the murderer. It's a great example of how popular opinion is not always right. Look here, popular opinion is not always right. Just because the crowd is doing something that does not mean that it is the right thing to do. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Exodus, Moses giving the children of Israel the law of God says that you and I actually should not follow the multitude in order to do evil. Just because everyone else is, look here, does not mean you should 
just because everyone else does does not mean it is right and good for us to participate in. And our current cultural moment demands that we have the courage to obey God rather than go along with the opinion of men. Look here. I'll say it again. We'll take a second pass because some of you were sleeping on the first one. Our current cultural moment demands that you and I, as the people of God, have the courage to obey God rather than go along with the opinions of men. Do not follow the multitude to do evil. And so this is what happens. Verse 15, so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas. A convicted murderer is set free. While Jesus is condemned to die. Released Barabbas unto them, notice the phrase, verse 15, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. It's a prisoner exchange. The miracle worker, the son of God, God himself, for a murderer, a thug, a rebel. Jesus willingly exchanged his life for Barabbas. He gave his life so that Barabbas could go free. But listen very closely, my friend. We are not meant to understood this simply, to understand this simply as Jesus exchanging his life for Barabbas. We're meant to understand that this is Jesus exchanging his life for yours. His life for mine. His life for ours. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. First Peter, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous, the Bible says, for the unrighteous. That you and I were the guilty ones. Jesus was the innocent one. You and I had sinned against God. Jesus obeyed God. You and I disobeyed the Father. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. And Jesus exchanges his life for ours. This is understood as the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Look here. The substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Jesus for Barabbas means Jesus for me. Jesus for you. Jesus for us. Jesus before Pilate. Barabbas for Jesus. And Jesus tortured for you and for me. 
This is all we have from Mark's gospel. In fact, this is most of the gospels. We aren't given the account of the scourging or the flogging or the crucifixion in, in much detail. You're, you get it basically in sentence formats. The rest of it we put together with history. It simply is recorded in verse 15 and scourged him. That's it. It's all Mark says. They scourged him. They turned him inside out. Pilate had tried to exonerate Jesus. But Pilate, his desire for justice was outweighed by his desire for political expediency. Peace in Jerusalem was more important than justice for Jesus. And Jesus is getting a raw deal here, and Pilate seems to know it. But Pilate wasn't courageous enough to do anything about it. You know, we know very little of Pilate after this event. The Bible doesn't tell us much about the way in which he went on to live. How he ruled. I'm certain of this, this event must have haunted him. He must have thought of it often. When he sentenced a miracle worker to die and he let a murderer go free. You know what's interesting about this text? We have little to no record of what happened to Barabbas. Barabbas doesn't really have any part in the first three and a half years of Jesus' life. And we, aren't, we certainly aren't told of anything that happened to him afterwards. But I'm certain of this. I'm certain that whatever life Barabbas lived after this, he lived the rest of his life knowing and an innocent man went to the cross and died while he went free. I don't know what either of those men made of the opportunity that was afforded to them through Christ. I don't even know if they understood the severity, the eternality of what was taking place. But this is what I do know. There are times in my life when I'm tempted to feel the sting of sin, the shame of the choices I've made. There are times in my life where I lack the conviction or the courage or the resolve to do the right thing in spite of opinion around me. There are lots of times in my own life where I feel the defeat. I think of Jesus standing there on that stage with those men and I put myself in that same position. And Jesus on that Stage with Barabbas says, 
Give me your crime. I'll take your sentence. You walk free. And Jesus, to you this morning, stands on that same stage and says to you, give me your sin. I'll take your cross. You go free. I'll gladly receive the unfairness so that you and I can receive the generous grace and mercy of God. Came across this illustration this week. I don't, I don't know if you saw in the news a, a few weeks ago, two activists with a, with a group called Just Stop Oil. They walked into the National Gallery in London with a can of tomato soup. They walked up to Van Gogh's 1888 masterpiece painting called Sunflowers. They opened that can of tomato soup and they threw it onto the painting. The painting is valued at $83 million. After they threw the can of tomato soup onto the painting, they reached into their shirts and pulled out glue, put glue on their hands, and then glued themselves to the wall. I saw that video, and all kinds of frustration came up in me. The same was happening all over social media, and news outlets were going crazy, like... These people just destroyed a priceless Van Gogh painting. And later, later that week, the National Gallery there in London issued a statement that said there were some minor damages to the frame, but the painting was unharmed. It turns out that they prepare precisely for this kind of a thing. And those paintings have a fine layer of glass over the outside of them. It's imperceptible to the human eye. So when they threw their can of tomato soup onto the painting, it couldn't hurt it. The flesh, the world, the law, throw accusations against you, against me. And sin may splatter across the frame of our lives. But listen, friend, the substitutionary work of Christ is greater than anything that sin can do to us. A murderer goes free because Christ died for him. And you and I can be free because Christ died for you.
Paul says that this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and in Christ and through Christ. Because Christ gladly and willingly was treated unfairly. You and I become the recipients of the mercy and grace of God himself. Jesus for Barabbas is really Jesus for Dave. Jesus for Barabbas is really Jesus for you. Jesus for us. Barabbas goes free and he delivered Jesus to be scourged and to be crucified. 